This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, I gotta wear my swan's hat. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, greeting lords and ladies. You've ventured into another chapter of Equity Mates, a chronicle that shadows our quest in the realm of coin and commerce. Be you a green squire or a meister akin to Warren Buffett, our purpose is to shatter the walls that keep you from your first coin to your regular rightful dividends. If this is your maiden journey with us, I bid you welcome. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren, any thoughts? Uh, another perfectly normal intro <laughs> from you. Uh, well, it's like medieval. Um, it is the vibe, yeah. Uh, how specific do I have to be? Well, this is person specific. I oh, think all God. of them from here. But if you get it in the, in like, the realm. Like a king or. Yes. Like a, yes. This is how. Um, fictional king. king. King Charles still talks today. <laughs> <laughs> a fictional king. Fictional king. Very popular while we were through university. Very popular TV show. Uh, like Game of Thrones. Yes, along those lines. I was Ned Stark, if you couldn't tell. Winter is coming. Uh, that's highly specific. <laughs> well, I mean, la- last year, it is. It Fair is. enough. Don't, you don't win them all. One day you'll get them. One day you'll get it. Great. Well, we've got a massive show. If you have joined us for the first time, a huge welcome. We do have a, a podcast called Get Started Investing. If you're just trying to get up to, the, to speed with the basics, so um, go, go and check that out. But otherwise, we're ready to jump into a huge episode. We've got a question from a community member, Steve, that carries on from our discussion from our interview with Kelly Shu on ESG. We're going to continue Alex's mentored journey with his mentor, Al- Andrew Page. But first, Ren, there's plenty going on in markets and the news. So we're going to start there. Yeah. Yeah, there is so much going on. I mean, let's start in, in Australia and let's start with... I think some good news. Well, some better news, the inflation and interest rate stories. So inflation came in, the rate of infl- inflation is slowing, 4.9%. That's good. It's better. It's better. It's true. That's that's a better way to phrase <laughs> it's that. It's better. And as a result, uh, the RBA held interest rates steady for the third month in a row. Yes. So we had th- uh, 12 increases in 13 months. We went from 0.1% to 4.1%. But since then, 
So that was between May 2022 and June 2023. And since then, July, August, September, we've had holding. Holding pattern. That's yeah. good. I mean, yeah, it depends which way you want to look at it. The reason we say it's better is because obviously inflation has been higher, but the Reserve Bank tends to, well, want to try and keep inflation within that band of 2 to 3%. So a bit to go. Yeah. Andrew and I speak about this and some central banks are going the other way and they're just saying, oh, well, our inflation target's now 4 to 5%. Yeah, yeah. So- it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> I think Get out that, of jail free. The, the, like the, t- the 2% was an arbitrary number. Like there's no scientific or economic basis to it, um, like so much of economics. But um, I think it was a New Zealand economist that suggested 2% and everyone said that feels about right. Like I said, some central banks are taking the, the other option, which is we'll just, just raise, raise the number. Just yeah. raise, raise it up to the band. <laughs> move, move the goalposts. Job done. So yes, um, Philip Lowe, who was the RBA governor, his contract is up. So his last meeting was the Tuesday that we've just had. And yes, he kept rates at 4.2%. Tough job for the new- 4.1. 4.1. Tough job for the new governor coming in, Michelle Bullock. Because I don't feel sorry for her. She's on like a nine hundred thousand dollar pay packet. I know. Well, that's what Phil was on. I assume she got the same. Yeah. I would wear the weight of interest rate decisions for nine hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> would you? Yeah. <laughs> well, you wouldn't. <laughs> well, he copped it pretty hard over the last sort of eighteen months. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's out. Hey, we cop it hard on social media. <laughs> Have you seen our TikTok comments? And we certainly don't get nine hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> this is true. This is true. For me, though, it's interesting, Ren, like the, the current sentiment is, I feel like it's mixed. I think there's a, there's a general sense of optimism that probably didn't exist six to eight months ago. The markets, you know, this month they've, they've sort of ended down, but overall we're still seeing some, some pretty positive returns. But what I find interesting is that, you know, that they say statistically the lag effect of interest rate rises is not generally felt until sort of the 12 month mark. And as you said at the top there, we've gone from 0.1% to 4.1% in 12 months, which is an historical rate rise, the speed of that. And so is now the time to start really thinking what is going to be the effect of this this rate rise? Well, let me answer that for you with some recent data that came out from the RBA this morning as we're recording. The interest that Australians pay on their mortgages has doubled from last year we well we i say we i don't have a mortgage neither do you but um we both hope to have one and feel that pain soon uh 83 billion dollars annually in interest that's double what it was a year ago in the june quarter uh from this abs data uh, australian households paid 24.5 billion in interest 24.5 billion annualized that it's a hundred billion so, but twenty four point five billion in the quarter compared to eleven point nine billion the same quarter last year. So, to answer your question, what are the effects going to be? That's where it's felt first, and there's a wealth effect there across the economy. Andrew and I spoke about uh, the retailers, and you know we've just come through earnings season or reporting season, and everyone's numbers were okay considering they were pretty good considering, but the retailers also give investors a view of how they've started the next financial year because by the time they're reporting they have you know sort of four to eight weeks of data for the new year and a lot of them were like this year has started very soft yeah yeah yeah. well yeah consumer spending is down we also know that through covid and and sort of over the last 18 months household savings were at sort of record high everyone putting cash away that that's now 
back down to to levels pre-COVID and and the saving household saving ratios are, are going down, people drawing on their savings for this increase in interest rates. I mean, at the end of the day, what's happening is what is supposed to happen when interest rates go yeah, up. So, yeah, textbook. So, textbook. Yeah, 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 so yeah. from a from a I think from a in terms of a governance point of view and and bringing heat out of the economy and and whatnot, it, the effects are it's, it's happening. How severe that's going to be going from point one to four point one. That's the question for me. Yeah, so I think uh, there is a little bit of optimism in the market, but it's important to temper that because there's more to play out. But let's talk about someone who's certainly not optimistic, uh, which is the big news of this week, Alan Joyce. He's out. I reckon he'd be feeling pretty optimistic. He's just gone, see ya, with 10.8 million bucks in the bank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but for me, like 15, so 15 years in the spotlight, uh, running one of the most iconic companies in Australia, um, you leave on this note, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't f- help but feel tarnished. I mean, it's his own doing. I don't, I don't feel sorry for him. Like he had, he had alternative options. He didn't have to. Like, it's not like he woke up and went, "Wow, this, um, this came out of nowhere." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. He, I, he's just gonna leave with a. I mean, he, with a sour taste. We're gonna. Le- he's gonna leave, leaving a sour taste in our mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, um, <laughs> eloquent as always. <laughs> We, we did an episode on The Dive, our business news podcast, where we unpacked the three scandals, the three big scandals and some of the minor ones. We don't need to cover that here. Everyone's heard about it on the news, but you can go check out that episode. We'll include a link in the show notes. But looking at the share price return, so Alan Joyce joined in 2008, well, became CEO in 2008. From January 2008 to today, how much do you reckon the Qantas share price is up? Uh, nothing. Less less than five percent. Yeah, four percent. Um, geez, you do host an investing podcast, <laughs> and they basically didn't pay dividends in that time. They did in seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, but not a massive shareholder return. Um, we should say though, he actually came in in November two thousand and eight. From there, depths of the JFC, Qantas share price is up about one hundred and twenty percent. But he's universally seen as like a great CEO. I think you and I even had a back and forth on an Equity Mates episode where you called him like a great manager. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, he is the quintessential example of like the classic Milton Freeman, neoliberal Chicago school CEO. And what I mean by that is like the pre the 70s, mainly the 80s, there was this view that like businesses looked after their communities that they were in and their employees and stuff like that. In walks Milton Freeman and says, the only obligation a CEO has is to their shareholders, their equity shareholders, and everything else is sort of immaterial. And that led to, you know, the, the corporate culture that we've had over the last 50 years really exemplified in the 80s and and carried on there it's like shareholders are what matters and your obligation is to your shareholders and a generation of professional ceos and executives have come in with that ethos and i think alan joyce sums that up because there's a long there's a list of people that he's fought with Qantas pilots, Qantas baggage handlers, everyone, airports, mm. the government, mm. Mm. <laughs> Australia as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and but he's like for him, the one thing that he's been laser focused on, and all of the scandals that we're talking about now, how he would defend himself. My only obligation is to the Qantas yeah. shareholders, and I acted in their best interest. Yeah, it's been his line. 
Yeah. Yeah. And shareholders, well, I don't know if they're happy or not, but he's, he's, um, he, I, th- I actually saw on ABC the other day that he's actually lost them more money over his tenure than he's made them. Like in terms of uh, annual profits yeah, and losses, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's finished on a high, obviously one one point six billion dollar profit. Or no, oh yeah, yeah. Post tax, pre tax, it was yeah. all, almost two and a half. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, hasn't paid a lot of tax over his journey. Hasn't paid a lot. No. <laughs> what is also a great uh, thing? One thing you should do is look up his. Um, <laughs> look up what he looked like when he started as a CEO. Scruffy, open tie. A bit sort of like, and look at what he looks like oh, really? now. Yeah, the, the <laughs> progression of him over the last fifteen years: slicked back hair, nice glasses, beautiful suits. It's um, it's worth having a look. Sorry, there's an effect, and I I just can't Google it. Um, where actors get hotter as they go through the seasons because um, they get more money yeah, obviously. yeah, well, yeah that's yeah, kind yeah. of what I'm, I'm yeah, implying yeah. you can and see his pay packet coming in yeah <laughs> and I think there's a term for it but I just I couldn't google it so um, anyway but uh, anyway look speaking of uh, big jobs for the new RBA governor a huge job ahead for the new Qantas CEO Vanessa Hudson Vanessa Hudson is she interim or no she's legit? in yeah she's okay in. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 in sooner than I think she was anticipating been with Qantas since 1994 yeah yeah that's a company woman. That is, yes. Yeah. And um, that's what you could have been at Woolies if you stuck <laughs> it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Um, a lot of work to do. There is serious brand damage for Qantas at the moment, and um, I mean, if you're a, the competitor, now's the time to seriously strike. Yeah. Well, Qatar, Qatar Airways orchestrated Alan Joyce's downfall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I reckon that'll get overturned. Definitely. No, yeah. the, uh, the transport minister, uh, Dan Tan, came, uh, has publicly said Qatar can reapply. Oh. And like the amount of public pressure, you're not yeah. going to be the trade minister that turns that down. No. Yeah. yeah. Which is good for us. Great. I do feel sorry for Australia's airlines competing with government-backed airlines from overseas. Like the amount of losses that they can absorb, the pricing that they can put in the market. That feeling of sorry is obviously tempered by the fact that Qantas had a record profit this year. Mm, so, mm, yeah, mm, you know, clear caveat there. Mm, but airline of an international, being the CEO of an international airline would be one of the tougher gigs. Very tough. A lot easier to be CEO of a duopoly supermarket. Much harder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's keep moving. Ren, last week we spoke about the IPO window opening. We um, also put up a post on our Instagram and news continues to flow. There's a huge IPO on the table. A uh, huge IPO that everyone has been affected by, but no one knows. Yeah. yeah. And that is Arm, which is one of UK's, or if not UK's largest chip designer. And m- not potato chips, but microchips. <laughs> Important clarification. Important clarification. They, uh, they make hardware that's in almost every smartphone. Mm. So they're IPOing at a valuation between $47 and $51 a share, which is essentially a $52 billion uh, valuation at IPO. So a huge, val- a huge IPO coming out at a, I think they're timing this incredibly well given what's going on in this space. Like it's, yeah, it yeah, is yeah. hot. Yeah. So they're striking while the iron's hot. Interestingly, one of the largest owners currently is SoftBank. Yeah. So I, maybe they're finally going to get something right. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I think f- full owner? Um, 
art i don't know i thought I they were so. part okay oh, okay um yeah so instacart which we spoke about last week uh arm that you've mentioned there both profitable mm. which you like to see yes profitable tech companies who would have thought yeah well i mean the environment there we're in you know you're not, not going to get very far if you're not yeah. yeah and there's one other ipo that is coming out uh clavio have you okay. heard of them? No. I hadn't heard of them either. Also profitable, like marketing tech, email automation, that kind of stuff. But here's why they're fascinating for me. So Shopify, the e-commerce platform where if you want to spin up a um, e-commerce store. I'm doing it. Yeah, drop shipping. On Get Started Investing, uh, Bryce has is starting a drop shipping yeah, business. Yeah. You'll probably use Shopify for that. 100%. There you go. You yeah. will use Shopify for that. Shopify invested $100 million into Clavio in August 2022, which is a heap of money. But yes. just just <laughs> pause on that for a second because when I read that, like the, the guts to do that from Shopify was pretty amazing. Shopify is not profitable and it dropped $100 million. Like that in itself is a massive step for an unprofitable company. In 2022 as well. But that's the more amazing thing. August 2022, Shopify's share price had fallen more than 80% in less than a year. From November 2021 to August 2022, more than 80%. Like there, there would have been like people would have been panicking in HQ. That people, there were layoffs. Like uh, things were not good in unprofitable tech land. And in particular, Shopify was like a real example of that. To have the... I guess, long-term vision, to have the conviction, to not hoard that $100 million and keep your balance sheet strong, but to invest it, like that's a that's a sign of a company that's seeing through the cycle. Yeah, it's high conviction, that's for sure. Will it pay off though? Yeah. And like now, to be fair, it's what, like a $90 billion market cap or something. So like this is a big company. They got the cash. They've yeah. got a lot of big customers. Yeah. Um, so let's not make this more than it is. But when I read that, I was like, that is pretty amazing. Respect. Yeah. So it's an email marketing company or email company. Yeah. Marketing automation and stuff yeah. like that. Also profitable. So Instacart, Clavio, number of profitable IPOs coming and they're probably the wedge that then yeah, you kicks know, it all off. Kicks the door open and then a number of unprofitable companies come through. Kick it off. IPO windows open. <laughs> Away investors we go. euphoric and we're <laughs> in a bull market again. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> All right, well, that's the news for the week, Ren. Let's move on to Mentored. Now, if you've just joined us for the first time, to quickly get you up to speed at the start of the year, Alec and I just wanted to, to pair up with an expert investor to improve our own investing skills. And so Ren chose Andrew Page and I chose uh, Henry Jennings. Now, Henry is overseas enjoying himself in Italy at the moment, so I'll be catching up with him in the next few weeks. But um, yeah, Ren, um, touch base with Andrew. Yeah, and in this, uh, I just really wanted to catch up, touch base and get his sense on what's happened over the past few months with earnings season, reporting season. He's particularly focused on small caps, so also to hear what happened on this, in the smaller end of the market. Andrew, good to see you again. G'day, mate. Good to see you. Well, I've been on holidays for a few weeks and haven't really been thinking about uh, investing too much. And what, um, what have I missed? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's always been thus, but it feels like the market is really jittery right now. Like we, like, as you know, Alec, I, I love small caps, you know, it's not that unusual to see double digit percentage moves in a day, gut churning kind of stuff, but you see it, right? 
you don't usually see it for billion dollar plus companies. And there was like, there's a whole bunch of examples that we saw this reporting season, Altium, Ordinate, both up 25% plus in a single day. Yeah, there was new information. It was good information, but it literally added hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in, in you know, the case of Altium, like a billion dollars, like, you know, in, in a single day. WiseTech went the other direction, you know, massive drop down, but also Accent, Whitehaven. There was just, just a bunch of really big moves. The unfortunate thing of those three companies, the one that I do own is WiseTech. So, <laughs> oh man, yeah, it's, that's that's always the way too. I've got I've got too many of these. Um, it's just embarrassing, really. Where I can I can put my hand up and say, oh, I bought Altium years ago at like a fraction of the current price. But but lest you think I'm a genius, like I sold like well ages ago as well. At the time, thinking, oh, look how smart I am. And I look at some of these results and go. Why? Mm. Why did I do that for? And there's a there's a hindsight bias to that, but at the same time, the, the rationale for selling was oh, it's a little bit expensive. And I don't know how many times I need to learn this lesson, but really high quality companies, you know, they tend to keep winning. And you you not that any price is 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 acceptable, but you don't want to be too fussy on it. And when I look at my biggest losses. It's it's the the altiums and of the world where it's not that I actually lost money, but from an opportunity cost perspective, the loss was tens of thousands, if not more, of dollars because I just I was just dumb, yeah. frankly. So you say the market was jittery, but uh, a couple of the companies there jittery. You think negative, but like. Altium was back, like it, uh, you know, it, it, it's had a rough time and it was up a lot. So jittery on both going both ways. What what do we take from that? Just that like people don't know what to think, or I don't know. Skittish maybe is a better word, or just it was. Altium's a good case in point because for a long time now they've had this very. I'm going to forget it off the top of my head, but this very large aspirational goal, and it always seemed sort of ambitious, but they're more or less sort of tracking towards it. And with some of the some of the commentary, some of the results is like, no, nah, they're gonna not only hit that, potentially even exceed it and potentially sustain that momentum for a little bit longer. So I think in the year 2023, do we have more algorithmic traders? Are there more bots involved? Are there I, I can come up with narratives that maybe sound really smart, but I, I don't know what I don't know what the answer is. Here's the thing though. It's not bad. It's it's actually a good thing. And I don't think no matter how advanced we get, whatever happens, I think we will always have this reminder that markets are generally not rational. They're certainly not efficient. And as investors, we should be terrified of the prospect that they ever become rational and efficient because as our as stock pickers, we're out of a job. But we want like really dumb things to happen short term and long may that continue to happen. Not that I'm saying it was a dumb thing with Altium, but there's a lot of examples out there where it's like, maybe ResMed is worth talking about. So the big sleep apnea company, like they've dropped massively. Again, they're a $10 billion company now after this 25, like lost a quarter of their value because of a new weight loss drug. And people, I think the market's assuming that obesity is cured and that no one will <laughs> snore anymore. Yeah. It's like- Really? Okay. <laughs> it's a fascinating story. The other side of that story is fascinating as well. Novo Nordisk, the company that you're mentioning, about to become the most valuable company in Europe. I think 
it's right now the second most valuable company and it's ripping. Wow. You know, if, if they're onto something here, like I rem- I'm old enough to remember, man, when, I mean, gastro banding was becoming a thing mm. and, and people were freaking out with ResMed. Then it's like, oh, that's going to cure obesity. Like, is it though? Is it really? So maybe, maybe in this case, we saw the, the valuation was too stretched and maybe things have just come back to normal. So I don't want to suggest, I haven't done the work. I don't want to suggest, oh, now things are really cheap. But it is an, an example of that's really the only new piece of information. The case with ResMed, they posted incredibly strong revenue and earnings growth, good outlook and the rest of it. So that's the thing that has changed. And all else being equal, is that in and of itself enough to wipe literally billions of dollars off this company? I don't know. I don't think so. So uh, the one of the big takeaways was that the market is jittery. There's big movements. Good news for stock pickers. What were some of your other big takeaways? My other big takeaway is is that for all of the companies I hold, I didn't get those 30% re-rates. <laughs> and it's been frustrating because, I mean, you, 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 we've talked about this before where, you know, as an investor, you want to have, you want to have your investment thesis, you know, why I'm, Peter Lynch, right? Know what you own and why you own it, right? I own this and this is why I own it because I'm kind of expecting this to happen. And every reporting season, even if it's a quarterly update or anytime the company releases new information, you sort of get a chance to sort of test that thesis. Like, were these assumptions reasonable? Uh, or at least directionally sort of reasonable. And um, I don't know, maybe I'm kidding myself, but I feel as though on a few of the comments like, tick, that's brilliant, okay. I mean, not not that there was like a massive out, out like, oh, that's much better than I thought, but I thought I, everything is going well. Yeah. And and in the case of a couple of companies, they're, they're like dropped to lower in the, like, Ava <laughs> Risk Group, I think we've talked about before, is something that I'm, I'm quite fond of. They had like a... Donkingly good result, and shares were down like seven percent, I think, in the wake of the results. It's like, right? Hey, that's that's weird. Now, again, I I, I say it sucks. I, I if I'm trying to be more level-headed, it's like, well, that's an opportunity. If if you ask, like on paper, what is the best possible setup that I can hope for as an investor? It's a company that is executing well, and that the share price continues to fall. Mm. Like that's a that's a good it's a good combination. Yeah. But I'd be lying if I said I, you know, I'm happy that the shares have gone down. Yeah, I wish that yeah, they've, yeah. They've gone up. For me, it's a reminder. This earnings season, and it's not a new observation, but it's a reminder of the fact that returns never come evenly. Mm. In the sense that it, it is, it is gradually, and then it's suddenly. And it, it's sort of like I tweeted out the other day. Altium was a really good case in point. If you were an investor looking at your three-year total annual compound return the day before the results, you've gotten two and a half percent per year. So you're there looking back at your and going, I bought Altium three years ago because I thought it was a really good company, big, good prospects, share price was reasonable. And I've gotten two and like less than inflation. Now, if you did the exact same calculation on the exact same company and you did it one day later, you've now got a 10% compound annual return over the trailing three years. So you've just, you've frame shifted that three year period one day. And you've gone from two and a half to three percent, and that's that's a reminder that returns are not even on this market, and that's what's going to screw with your head because, you know, when you look at a chart, you go, oh, you know, it did nothing, and then all of a sudden it did something, and 
you know, that's what I should expect. But living through that three years, you can imagine, especially while the market's doing this, it's like, that is brutally tough, but that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned there that most of the companies in your portfolio, you sort of looked at and you were like, tick. Were there, uh, it would be great if there was an example of a company where you looked at it and you're like, oh, the thesis has broken just so we could talk through it. I don't know if there is one. I don't, I don't think so too much, actually. It's sort of, the reason being is perhaps is that a lot of the ones that I'm rather fond of have, have got some hairs on them. And I think they did, they, they just had their fall from grace. And so if I'm being honest with myself and hopefully I am and I'm being objective, the mistake I made was, was already revealed like six to 12 months ago where there were some companies and we've talked about Catapult before, we've talked about EnviroSuite before, talked about Point Terra before, which really there's just some brilliant businesses you know, there. But things got a little bit carried away. The execution wasn't perfect. Like a lot of companies, they sort of were not focusing on cash flows and were only focusing on the top line there. And so the market came down when we sort of had this sort of sell-off in growth and tech. And, and hopefully what I did was reformulate the thesis and go, okay, Okay. So, so the worst thing to do is go, okay, made a mistake. That's it. I'm never going to look at them again. Um, but I've invested a lot of time in understanding those businesses. So if I've done it right, I feel as though, okay, the mistake has been made. It has been revealed. But if I dust myself off and look at these again, acknowledging some of those shortcomings and now looking at where the company is positioned and putting that in the context of the current price, where it's just sort of like, gosh, there's a much hot, lower bar to jump over at seven and a half cents for VirusSuite, for example, than at 30 cents, mm. right? So, you th so things maybe aren't as good as you initially formulated, but then again, you're paying a third of the price. Yeah. So, you know, things can sort of work out. There are some scenarios, I think, where the, the signs are encouraging yet still tentative. So where they have seemed to have pulled back on costs as a lot of companies have, but without taking the foot off the pedal in terms of necessary and reasonable long-term growth investments and without having a detrimental impact on the top line. I mean, it's very easy for any business to sort of just strip all their costs away and their profit's going to look a lot better, but you're probably just hobbling yourself for the future. So I think there's sort of these green shoots that are there and maybe the market's waiting for sort of maybe another quarter or half or a year down the track was like, oh yeah, it's encouraging, but I'm, I'm skeptical, I'm nervous. And then when, when you see a bit more evidence, maybe then the re-rate will come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So speaking of the re-rate and, you know, people's sentiment and all of that stuff, I know you don't really think about the macro too much, but I know a lot of people will be interested in your thoughts on it. So inflation came in this week, 4.9%, and there's hope of no more rate rises. There was, I even read some economists talking about rate cuts next year, so you know, there maybe is some green shoots. We won't get you started on housing because we'll blow through our time <laughs> and what's to come there. <laughs> but do you get a sense of like maybe sentiments turning, maybe some of these companies are starting to, you know, invest a little bit more for growth and, and sort of, you know, return to maybe not the crazy days of 2021, maybe return to like 2019 days. Yeah, right, right. I mean, I, you're right. I don't, I don't factor macro too much into the, investing I'm very much bottom up but I do think about macro a lot because it's well, it's just interesting it's not just from an economic lens I think it's from a societal lens right like you know things tend to go 
get pretty real when when people are poor and desperate. So it's it's sort of interesting to sort of track and geopolitically as well. So, I mean, uh, we've seen what's happened with um, Evergrande in the in China, mm. big property developer there, and then more recently. Of course, we've had Country Garden, so it's basically losing billions and probably going to default on all the on its bonds. A lot of uh, lenders there are going to be out of out of pocket. And why is that relevant from the macro scene? Well, China is the second largest economy in the world, and they're our biggest trading partner. And they tend to buy a lot of iron ore, and they've historically bought a lot of iron ore to build apartments and roads and railways and stuff. And they're just overbuilt. It's just these ghost cities. I mean, this is not a new theme. Yeah. But I think I think we 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 are now starting to see evidence of these things blowing out. You know, the word Ponzi gets thrown around too much these days. But I mean, literally, the business models of these lenders were sort of taking deposits and sort of use that to build the next project, pre-sell them. You know, it's just sort of like it worked wonderfully yeah. well until it didn't. And I know that people like to go, oh, it's a command economy, so it doesn't like the rules of economics don't apply, but. There is always going, someone has to pay the piper eventually. Yeah. And the government might print money and, and save them all. But that just means that everyone's going to suffer through dilution and well, what we call inflation. So on your point with inflation, I'm very much of the view that we are going to have higher for longer. I think we've definitely passed the peak, but I don't think we're getting back to 2 to 3% anytime soon. And the RBA was recently talking about climate change and the impacts that's going to have on inflation, right? So that's that's pretty real. And there's just been a lot of like trillions pumped into the system. So I'm 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 a bit of an Austrian when it comes to the the, the economic schools of thought. And mm. I, I think inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And there's just in the same way that we would understand that a company issuing a lot more shares is bad for existing shareholders, any economy where issues a lot, a lot more money is bad for existing currency holders. And I, I think I think that that's that's probably going to to be a phenomena, but but at the same time. I feel as though, and the new RBA governor, I think is making noises around trying to prepare us to just accept higher inflation. We're going to have to, in the, in the US, they're talking about changing the 2% target. Oh, oh that's really? too low. We need, oh my gosh. Yeah. There's oh. like, you know, Krugman and others are saying, oh, we need to, we need to increase the target. It's like, by the way, it's a completely made up target. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating it's arbitrary. story. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think they literally went. Two percent feels about right. Yeah. And, you know, okay. So, so I think we're going into a period of higher inflation. We're past the seven, eight percent sort of mark, hopefully. But the, the reality is in Australia, and I can't avoid it entirely. I'm sorry, so, but I won't go too deep into it. But the reality is, is that so much property is the linchpin of so much of the Australian economy, mm. and so many of us have put all of our wealth into it in a very highly levered sort of way. So you get to the point where I think the central authorities have this devil's decision to make, where it's just like, well, do we just all suffer some higher inflation for longer or do we crash the property market and, and thereby crash the entire economy? Now, both suck, but which one sucks less? And dash any hope of being re-elected. Like the political party that knocks this house of cards down, they're out. A hundred percent. Like it's just, it seems like, it seems like too basic a take, but obviously it is. Can you imagine a politician getting up there saying that no, we're 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 gonna we're going to make you poorer? And let's not forget that two thirds of the country has exposure to housing in a very real way. 
We often joke that uh, two-thirds of Australians might have exposure to housing, but more and more every Australian has exposure to the stock market through their superannuation. They just don't really think about it in the same way. But imagine if the integrity of our super balances was such a political issue as the, you know, our housing market and every politician was like, we cannot see the stock market fall, how that would change incentives, how that would change policies. You'd have first stock home buyers grants, you would have uh, first stock buyers grants, all, all of it, tax benefits, yeah. It's such a great point. But, you know, it has become a religion in this country and it, it like with property and we, we have seen, how many times do we have to try and put in policies in place to add extra stimulus, whether it lets people to deduct money from their super to put into property or whatever it never works right because it just lifts everything up to the same degree kicks the can down the road the latest is this shared equity scheme where the government now will just chip money in it's the most direct way <laughs> it, it's it's crazy it's crazy but i mean the the reality is is it's just i mean this is we uh, i said i wasn't going to talk about nah, it, that's all right let's go let's go <laughs> Very briefly is is that we all talk about, oh, we have to improve affordability. Now I've got, I've got a 13 year old son, right? And so he hears me ranting all the time and he goes, doesn't that just mean prices go down? Dad was like, you'd think so, son. You'd think as a 13 year old, and I'm not saying he's particularly bright, right? You know, but he's just like, that's the thing. We we have this bizarre like concept that we can make things more affordable without prices coming down. And you can't let prices come down, A, because of the leverage in the system, B, because of the knock-on consequences that it's going to, to have. So it's, just, it's a really difficult scenario. I'm not calling for a house price crash, but uh, I just think it – I could come back to earnings season for a second. So here's another thing I, I should have mentioned before. When you look at all the retailers, uh, whether it's Dust Group or even Nick's – like the really good ones like JB Hi-Fi and Nick Scarly and the Red, they're all not – I mean – some have held up much better than others, but but out of the commentary was, look, the first eight weeks of the current financial year, we have seen sales fall substantially. And that's, that is a very strong indicator of what is happening. So we're not seeing it in terms of defaults or anything like that on housing. And the bank's results came out actually pretty healthy, right? There's, there's nothing wrong there. But of course, housing is the last thing to go. Like you, you will do whatever. Okay, I can live without my another iPhone or a drone toy or something like that, or I don't need another scented candle from dust group, you know, but I do need to pay the mortgage. And, and um, I, I feel as though that is a really interesting um, indicator of, of, yeah, just how tough people are doing it. Yeah, it is. And yeah, it's, it's going to be one to watch. So uh, final question, any last takeaways that we haven't covered yet? Anything that I should be aware of as you bring me up to speed? I, actually, I, I've made this comment elsewhere. I think it's a good one. I'm saying it aloud more for myself. I think as investors, we feel as though during reporting season that we need to read, synthesize, digest and react really quickly. Results are out. I've got to read it. I've got what is is it good or is it bad? And let's face it, we look at the share market. Is it up? It must have been good mm-hmm. if it was down. It was, it was dumb kind of stuff. And more and more, I've actually got a lot of. I think the work starts now after reporting season. The, the reality is, like, you're never going to be fast enough to read all of that, interpret it, digest it, and then make a sensible, calculated, calm decision that quickly where you can front run an immediate market reaction. So it's, 
it's gonna whatever reaction is gonna be, whether it's a thirty percent pop in the case of Altium or a Wise Tech twenty five percent pop, the horse is bolted, mm. right? So, so take your time. In, in, in things are gonna get. We go from feast to famine. Things are gonna get really quiet in the next few weeks. This is, I think, the time to in, in the away from the the chaos of earnings season to read things in a calm manner, make an informed decision, and the, and 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 you know go forward from there. Making it's true in life and it's true in investing. Whenever you make a rushed decision, it's usually a bad decision. And you were away for reporting season. I actually think it's a, I think it's a good thing. I, I don't think it's, you know, unless you're some short-term trader, which I know you're not, I, I actually think you've, you've avoided a lot of that distraction and that, that sound and fury. And now you can, and they're still very fresh. So these are very fresh numbers that you can spend the next coming weeks at your leisure without a, a, a requirement it feels like to to react to just digest to contemplate to think and and then and then if you need to 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 react and in many cases you won't need to so i, I would i would approach it like that and I, i'm certainly trying to approach it like that yeah i love that well i think that's a good sentiment to leave it on the work starts now uh, i look forward to uh working with you and um you know i'll look at my portfolio and start looking at opportunities and next time we chat maybe i'll uh have a few companies that i want to pick your brain on because i'm excited to to get into the work back from holidays refreshed and ready to go roll roll the sleeves up i'm here for it man i'm looking forward to it nice one all right bryce well that was my conversation with andrew page uh always inspiring always leave those conversations uh motivated to get stuck in and go and research more companies and then the world and commitments here at equity mates catch up so so we've got four months until the end of the year not that there is any race or rush on anything but do you reckon you'll make an investment based on anything you've spoken about with andrew i've already made investments based on things we've spoken oh. about yeah tell, tell us about it i'm constantly investing <laughs> well constantly investing yeah, you just yeah, yeah. said <laughs> call me alan Kohler. i'm the constant investor <laughs> uh, topping up Opening positions, <laughs> the market, you know, I'm wheeling and dealing. <laughs> we just don't have time on equity mates to talk just about tell it. Tell us about it. That's why we need more. No, no. Let, let's take a break, and then after we're going to talk ESG investing. Uh, equity mate Steve sent us a message to follow up on an interview we did a couple of weeks ago about, I guess maybe the pitfalls of ESG and socially conscious investing. So we'll get to that after this. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
All right, Bryce, uh, we are talking all things ethical investing. It's clearly a big conversation in the Equimates community. In, I guess, the broader community, there's a sense that not enough is being done, particularly around climate change. And if we as investors can use our dollars to drive change, it's something we should do. Billions of dollars have flown into the space. Tens of billions of dollars have flown into the space. Every fund manager now but has... trillions are required. Thank you. No, no worries. <laughs> uh, <laughs> every fund manager now has an ethical fund or talks about their ESG policy, which was why when we came across Professor Kelly Shu from the Yale School of Business, who had a contrarian take on ethical investing, uh, we really were interested in uh, speaking to her. Her view is that uh, ESG investing is actually a net negative in terms of driving good environmental outcomes. Surprising opinion. And I think specifically when we talk about it, it's the approach of divesting from brown companies or yeah. divesting yeah. away from companies that are high sort of carbon emitters. That's the lens that she's looking at it from. Yeah, and the reason is if you don't invest in companies that need to change. It increases their cost of capital, their cost to borrow money or raise money from shareholders and that they need that money to change their operations. So instead, because the cost of capital increases, they can't change, they become more short-term and they just sweat their polluting assets as hard as they can and mm. make as much profit. Mm. Now that is Kelly's theory. That's not a universally accepted view, but that's Kelly's theory. And it prompted this question from Steve. You have one new message. G'day, equity mates. Steve here. As a committed investor in ESG ETFs, your recent interview with Professor Shu got me wondering, should I stress or should I just invest? So I contacted one of my ETF providers, BetaShares, to ask for their take and received a pretty detailed response from their uh, responsible investment committee um, in general, they said they agree with the professor's analysis, but they disagree with her conclusions as they relate to the real world. So as investors in the real world, I thought equity mates might be interested in looking into some other perspectives on this topic. Thanks. So I think it, it's uh, great to say that we're um, generating discussion and forcing the responsible investment committee of one of the biggest ATF providers in Australia to... I mean, shout out to them to respond. for yeah. responding. Respect, yeah. 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 I'd love to actually know what they said. Steve, can you send the response through? Yeah, email us, contact at equitymates.com. We would be interested in reading it. Mm. We'll forward it to Kelly. Mm. <laughs> she, it was, she wanted to know as well what the, what the feedback from her conversation was True. within the Equitymates yeah, yeah, community. Yeah. So. so we have featured a number of different views on ESG investing over time. Two interviews that we'll include in the show notes that come to mind for me. Uh, Emily O'Neill, uh, we spoke to, and then uh, Adam Verway as well from Future Super. So a couple of other ESG interviews if you want to listen. But if you don't, let's sort of, I guess, unpack our views. So my view has been that if I'm to put my money into an ESG investment, it has to be in one where I'm confident that there is, what's the word, not petitioning, but like that there is- or like engagement. Engagement being done. Or activism. Yeah, yeah or yeah. activism being done by the, the fund or by whoever is in control of that money to the extent that you're actively forcing change. I don't think that by investing in funds that sort of do a negative screen 
So you, so in essence, you agree with Kelly. Well, I'd never kind of, I had never thought of articulating it in that way. Yeah. But I, but I'd always held the opinion that it doesn't feel like the right way to invest with an ESG focus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like you just think about like put yourself in the boardroom. For, forget that you're an investor for a second, and you're Rex Tillerson, the CEO of Exxon. Mm, hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the former CEO, yeah. but he, I don't know who the current CEO is. You have an incredibly profitable oil business. You get paid incredibly well, and sure, maybe your share base compensation will not be as high if your share price isn't as high, but like. You don't need capital markets that much. Like you will be able to sweat the current assets. There will always be a lender, maybe not in the US, well, definitely in the US, but like, you know, there are lenders overseas that you could get capital from. There would um, like Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund would be happy to to lend, be a lender of last resort to you. Your, just like your incentives because an ASJ fund isn't going to invest in you. Like you're not going to change what enough. you're doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On the other hand, the question is like, if you're Rex Tillerson and this ASG fund tries to engage with you, like, are you going to listen to what they're doing? Probably not. But where we've actually seen change, and I chose Exxon for a reason, is shareholder activism. So uh, engine number one, this t- is this tiny little hedge fund, um, I assume based in the States. They uh, had a major coup... Uh, where they challenged a number of board seats and actually, I think, got a couple of activists on Exxon's board at the shareholder meeting by just going hard around their company's efforts to combat climate change. Great. And so, like, that's an example where it's like a step beyond engagement. Mm. It's like adversarial activism, but there's an, getting enough shareholders on your side to drive you know, at least some engagement, some hopefully some have change. Have a voice. Yeah, have a voice yeah. with the, one of the biggest oil companies in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that that's how I think about it. Yeah. And it feels like you're the same. Yeah, I, I think divestment works to an extent. Like, you know, with the Rex Tillerson example, your personal incentives are like you're going to be okay either way. But I think on the margins uh, and I think with companies where they are – it's less it's 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 not an oil company but it's a, a company that is polluting a lot but has the capacity to change its operations take like a coles for example you know high emitter just because of the scale of the business and the footprint of the business but can do a lot like there's a lot of levers to pull i think their divestment works because of the personal incentives of executives and what i mean by that is most executives are paid most of their remuneration in shares And so the higher the share price, the better. But also their long-term incentive plans often have triggers where if the share price reaches a certain point, they get paid more. And so like as an executive, your personal incentive is to drive the share price up. And my view is that like that personal incentive drives a lot of executive behavior, both in this ASJ realm and just generally as well and so if if your executive team's personal incentive is to drive the share price up and you know that by engaging with asg funds by changing your operations there's massive pools of capital that you can access and that can drive the share price up then that's a personal incentive to do the work and make the change and i think that has an effect so i think to that extent divestment works as long as it's married up with like you are investing in companies that are doing it. doing the work and yeah. making the change and like 
Brad Banducci, Wooly CEO, would probably disagree with me. Actually, I think he said it publicly. Like selling their pubs business and because they were what the biggest operator of pokey machines in Australia. Pubs and pokies. Yeah. Wooly's split that business off, and now Endeavor Group is separately listed. And part of the reason for doing that was because there was massive pools of global capital that couldn't invest in Woolworths because of their gambling exposure, like big Canadian pension funds, trillions of dollars that were sitting on the sidelines. Mm. But once Woolies split their business, they then could invest. So like that is an example of where divestment has like affected the personal incentives and driven an outcome. Mm. The, The flip side, and I know I'm on a bit of a rant here, but the flip side is... Brad Banducci splitting off Endeavor Group did actually nothing to change the business of Endeavor Group. It just changed the ownership. Like, there's not one less pokey in Australia because Brad Banducci made that change. Yeah, but let's be clear, that wasn't the intention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so then it's like, you know, if you're a big diversified conglomerate and you say, well, we want this ESG money, we'll just split off our high-polluting business and make it separate. It doesn't actually change anything. No. Yeah. No. It's a challenging one because I think if you want to do the root of activism and whatnot as a, as a, you know, in our shoes, it's not like there's just ETFs out there that are as easy to access as the divestment or the it negative w- screen. It would be an epic ETF, mm. a highly active ESG ETF. It would attract a lot of funds. Yeah, I think to Steve's question, the real world application, the what's available for us at the moment is very much on... The divestment side. I should be clear. When I said highly active ESG fund, I don't mean like lots of trading, like an active yeah, yes. management. I mean yes. like activist, highly activist. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it is a view that I, we've spoken about this off mic a lot, that the ETF providers could do so much more in letting underlying unit holders like us, people that have invested in their ETFs, vote their shares. Vanguard says, hey, we're the biggest shareholder on every company almost around the world now. We're going to put this out to a democratic vote. Whatever our unit holders believe we should do, we will then drive outcomes hard. So rather than being a passive shareholder, it's like, hey, 80% have said we want to challenge Exxon's board nominations and, and put more climate activists on there. We've got to listen to our unit holders. We're going to do it. Or they go the other way. True. <laughs> put more coal and yes. more oil. Plenty of reasons why Vanguard wouldn't do that, but it would just be like an interesting thing for an ETF provider to try. Nice. Well, there you go, Steve. Thank you for the question. Uh, Keep them coming in. You can hit us up at contact at equitymates.com. If you can shoot us through the response from BetaShares as well, that would be awesome. And we'll make sure Kelly gets uh, feedback from her conversation with us because it is no doubt uh, resonating with the Equitymates community. And on that, a big thanks to Mark Hesketh, who listened to our pitch episode with Equitize last Thursday. We had Vitable, (laughs) Vitable and Farmer's Pick. Uh, if you haven't listened to that, make sure you do. We had two founders come in and pitch their startups, which was awesome. And we did a call out for uh, the title of the session. Ren wanted to do Fish Tank. I wasn't so hot on that. So he has said that he loves the shows and his suggestions are, here we go, pitch talk, pitches plus generating talk through your audience, T-O-R-Q-U-E, nice. Pitch talk, T-A-L-K, pitch fork, <laughs> scratch that pitch. <laughs> 
scratch that bitch. Oh, like it. Scratch yeah, that it. Yeah, bitch. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Not bad. Mark will um, take them to the team. I don't scratch mind. That pitch. I don't mind the mark, but I still prefer fish tank. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect because it's like we're not sharks, you know. We're yeah, just I fish. get it, but it's still no, no. It's not good branding. Thanks for that, Mark. Uh, we'll we'll sleep on that. If anyone has any other ideas. Please send them in. And if you haven't listened to that episode, tune in. And if you agree with Fish Tank, I need a groundswell of support here. So back me up. (laughs) No. Anyway, contact at equitymates.com. We're still open for suggestions and questions. But Ren, next episode, we will be speaking with Brent Beeshaw, who's made 14 investments in 16 years. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of Aussie retail investors have also just made 14 investments in 16 years. But Brent Bayshaw, he runs a private equity fund, permanent equity, but it is true long-term investing, 30-year funds, how that changes your investment decisions and your pace of investing, a fascinating conversation. We loved it. Can't wait to bring it to you and we'll pick it up next episode. Sounds good. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have physicians in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.